All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Sokka's Is That So? I'm really excited to be speaking to Darius Dale today. He is the CEO and founder of 42 Macro. Very interesting name. And if you haven't heard of Darius or 42 Macro, I'm sure you'll be hearing about them very soon. Uh, welcome to the show, Darius. Sokka, it's a real pleasure to have you, man, or, or beyond, man. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, why don't we jump straight into things? Um, what is your current assessment of the uh, economic environment globally today? How you see it from your purview? Ooh, so that's a loaded question. <laughs> um, so, look, uh, when we, whenever you're talking macro, I think it's really important, um, and this is you know comes back to my my background as a sort of institutional investor. It's always very important to understand sort of a what you're talking about, but b most importantly, talk about the things that matter the most. So when you talk about macro, there's really three big things that you need to get right um, in macro that, that really matter. One is the growth cycle. Um, you know, is growth accelerating or decelerating? Is it above trend or below trend? Um, same thing with inflation, accelerating or decelerating above trend or below trend. And then lastly, how do those two variables coalesce to kind of influence policymaker decisions? And right now we're sort of in this sort of perfectly bearish cocktail. If you think about all those three variables, when we have growth, the transition, we're slowing from a growth perspective, and we're going from above trend to below trend, at least in, in, in a reasonably forecastable horizon. And we're currently are starting to decelerate on inflation. <laughs> Sorry, we're, we believe we're starting to decelerate on inflation. <laughs> we economists have been uh, wrong-footed on that uh, for, for quite some time now. But the reality is, you know, if you look at it on a headline basis, inflation is now starting to roll over. Different pockets, of course, still actually accelerating and building momentum to the upside. But let's just assume we're talking about headline inflation. Headline inflation is now starting to decelerate, going from above trend to below trend. And because inflation is above trend and because growth is still not yet below trend, you still have a really negative policy mix, particularly as it relates to Federal Reserve, European Central Bank, Bank of England, all these major central banks are very actively engaged in tightening policy, many of which are tightening policy at the fastest rates we've seen in 30, 40 years. So uh, it's quite negative. Uh, the outlook doesn't necessarily get any better anytime soon, unfortunately, but I do believe there are ways we can uh, uh, sort of stomach weather the storm, if you will, as investors. Absolutely. And I love the fact we're having this conversation because it's sort of where the big picture macro meets the operators and the VCs and the people that are in the weeds. And from our perspective, you know, we hear the headline of interest rates going up. And from a practical perspective, to us, that means our cost of capital is going up. It means that our forecast in terms of what startups or what investments are profitable are changing because our net present valuation calculations and all that stuff is changing because we have to factor in the inflation. And in a low inflation environment, we've you know forecasted out very, very far in the future and investments make sense in that environment over the last 12 years. But now we're having to recalibrate and focus more on companies that are profitable um, you know, and things of that nature. And so from our perspective, the world has really kind of gone upside down. Um, from, from our perspective, how far can we expect interest rates to go up? Um, because what we're hearing is that they should go above the CPI or the, the core inflation, which is like eight or 9%. And for us, that would almost break our model in so many different ways. So, I mean, what, where should we set our expectations should we expect that or where are we tapering off? How, how should we think about it? Fantastic. So uh, the short answer is no, uh, we're not going to get in, uh, interest rates up to that level um, because we won't have to get interest rates up to that level. We're already starting to see uh, inflation momentum break down. And what I mean by momentum, if you look at it, uh, the statistics on a 
month over month annualized or three month annualized rate of change basis, you know, we're now already kind of in the, let's call it five to 6% range. And so as we, as long, you know, if we continue to slow, at least by the, over the next couple of quarters, it's likely that inflation momentum will be somewhere in the three to 4% range, which by then we'll, we'll likely have, um, you know, sort of uh, observed interest rates higher uh, than, than the infl reported inflation. You said something to me that I think is really important to unpack for not just operators, but investors, everyone. When you're in a higher inflation regime, and this is, we, we've proven this empirically with our data, putting to macro going all the way back to the 1800s. When you have higher inflation, it tends to have, you tend to be in higher inflation volatility regimes, i.e. The, the realized volatility of inflation is actually higher when inflation is higher. And the issue with that, that doesn't necessarily, it's not bad in isolation, but the problem with that is it makes it much more difficult to forecast and, and, and invest capital in any economy. And what tends to happen as a function of that, which we also can observe empirically, is that you have higher volatility in both nominal and real economic growth, right? If you have higher inflation volatility, higher volatility in nominal and real economic growth, it turns your entire world completely up on its head, right? It's so much more difficult to capitalize businesses and understand what the cost of capital or what even the cash flows are going to be in that type of scenario. So I think the whole world is, you know, we're, we're dealing with the regime change. I think you kind of alluded to this, which is we've been in this world, very disinflationary. We didn't really have to concern ourselves with, you know, the, the, the net present value of cash flows or, or sorry, we never had to concern ourselves with, with pulling cash flows forward into the present. We could just sort of, you know, discount them uh, far into the future. And that, in our opinion, at least according to our models, that that, that, that world is, is, we've exited that world. We are now in a structurally higher inflation world. Our maths, to be specific on that, we have, we, we built this very uh, sophisticated dynamic factor model uh, that takes into account 16 different variables that have various relationships with inflation from a co-integration and correlation perspective. And that model is suggesting that core PCE, which is the Fed's preferred inflation metric that strips out energy and, and uh, food, that model suggests core PCE on a trend basis should be around 120 basis points higher. And so that doesn't sound like a lot, but that's almost double relative to what it would have trended at the previous decade and this decade of low interest rates you know, sort of permanently high asset valuations. Absolutely. I'm going to come back to sort of the way that measured inflation, because from our perspective, it's kind of ludicrous that the Fed would remove things like housing and food. Like, isn't that the biggest problem? <laughs> well, um, if you strip out housing, food, uh, medical costs, <laughs> energy, then there is no inflation. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of bonkers. We're looking at that. And, you know, there are, there are economists that look at, I can't remember the name of the actual way of measuring inflation, but they use ones used in the 1970s because they want to get an apples to apples comparison um but just the way it's measured is, is a bit wonky to some of us on the outside looking at it as regular consumers um i don't know if you can share any light on why they use these types of metrics and exclude certain ones do you think that's the right way to measure it or uh, uh so i i tend not to get into the is this the correct way of doing things or not because at the end of the day we're market practitioners so it's my job to to help our clients make and save money Right. And they're either they, you know, it's their money or it's their client's money if they're hedge fund or mutual funds. So at the end of the day, what we're really trying to focus on is okay, what matters? How are the things that matter going to change over time? Can we forecast those things? And then if we can, let's build sophisticated models that allow us to forecast them accurately with consistency. That's really what we care about. But to answer your question, you know, on in terms of CPI methodology, it is, it is wonky and it is it's a funky construction because one thing that happens with the CPI specifically is that there's a lot of substitution that happens in real time all the time. Um, so let's say, you know, prices, I don't know, spaghetti shoots up. And so the Fed decides to substitute rigatoni instead of spaghetti in the basket. That stuff happens on a month to month basis. 
Um, you know, you go back and look at the index construction in the 1970s, you know, that that construction was based on, you know, what they assumed the consumer, the sort of median middle, you know, uh, consumer was spending their, their, their share of wallet back then, which obviously has changed and evolved over time. I mean, we have things like iPhones and, and you know, sort of self-driving cars now that might not have been in the basket uh, back in 1971. So there is some reason, like just fun, fundamentally for, for why it's changed. But to your point, there is a lot of sort of, I wouldn't say shenanigans, but I, I think if you had a more tinfoil hat view of the world, you could call them shenanigans. Because again, don't forget, uh, the government's um, social security payments uh, are indexed to CPI, um, as are TIPS, uh, Treasury Inflation uh, Protected Security. So like the, the government has a vested interest in, in reporting a lower level of inflation that is actually occurring uh, in the real economy. Absolutely. And kind of uh, understanding the regime change that we're going under that you mentioned, um, you know, you look at long term and short term debt cycles. I recently re read Ray Dalio's book on, you know, the changing world order. So we're trying to make sense of, all right, what how do we forecast and think about the next 10 years? Where are we in sort of the long term or short term debt cycle? Um, and, and, you know, is it is it so cataclysmic in terms of we're about to go into another hundred year period that's very different from the last hundred years? Or is it just a five year temporary change? Like, where are we in kind of the, the grand scheme of things? So I, <laughs> I study Ray's work uh, pretty religiously. Uh, in fact, I, I built our, our core forecasting model based on their uh, all weather system. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm quite familiar with Ray's work. I, I will say that I hold him as high regard as any investor in the world, but not even Ray has a view on what's going to happen 100 years from now, right? Like, let's, let's, let's keep all this stuff in perspective. We can identify, you know, different things like the short term and longer term debt cycles and try to ascertain based on various metrics. And again, we don't we never have perfect data as economists or investors. We can try to ascertain where we might be in these cycles, but the reality is none of us has a great track record of forecasting things 10 years, you know, 20, 30, 40 years in the future, right? So let's just let's let's humbly accept that and and, and just deal with the world as we see today and how some of these variables might change in a more predictable, uh, stable manner. Um, you know, as it relates to the sort of, you know, in terms of our view on the world, from a longer term perspective, to me, I think the biggest issue we need to be asking ourselves as investors is what is the Fed and other central banks as, as a function of that going to do in response to this higher inflation world, right? Because we're currently in a regime where the Fed is very clearly trying to get inflation back to its 2% mandate. But if you mentioned, I, I mentioned earlier that our, our model, and again, this is not, you know, our model could be wrong, could be right, who knows, but our model is at least saying that on the higher end of our projection range in terms of the underlying trend of inflation, it should be somewhere around 3% on a trend basis, which means the Fed's going to have an awfully easy time to get inflation from 9% to 3, but it's going to have an extremely challenging time to get it from 3 to 2. And it, more importantly, is it going to persistently try to get it from 3 to 2 throughout this entire decade? And if that's the case, we're going to be talking about a Federal Reserve whose policy is persistently tight and is consistently leaning against the market, which is basically a reversal of what we had in the previous era, which is a Federal Reserve that was consistently easy and is acting as a consistent tailwind to the market because inflation was undershooting their um, their target. So I happen to have a view, and again, this is where you know becomes less quantitative. We, again, we pride ourselves on being very quantitatively oriented investors. This is what becomes less qualitative and more qualitative. I have a view that when we get to that point in the process where we have to make these sort of very difficult trade-offs between higher unemployment and an additional 100 basis points of disinflation, I think the Fed is going to capitulate. I happen to think Jay Powell would much prefer the unemployment rate to not go to seven and a half percent from, let's say, it'd probably be five at that particular point in time, 
You know, I think they would much rather have they'd much rather have that uh, two point two hundred fifty basis point increase in unemployment and and, and sort of um, avoid that, if you will, as opposed to having that additional hundred basis points of of, of disinflation. So um, I think the real you have to have a view on that, by the way, as an investor to get this next let's call it three to five, six, seven years right as an investor, because if you have a different view on that, i.e., they're not going to capitulate, they're going to hold the line as they told us last Wednesday then it's going to be a much more challenging environment to, to operate uh, both a business and then to operate in as an investor. Absolutely. And one of the things I look at as an investor as well is the different markets that we operate in. So I make UK investments and on the plus side, UK investments look cheap because the pound has literally fallen off a cliff over the past couple of weeks, if not months. Right. Which means they're cheap. But at the same time, if I invest in a company there and the revenues are going up, Ultimately, the revenues have to outpace the devaluation of the currency because I have to put back in U.S. dollars and things of that nature. In fact, there was a recent FT article that showed the, that the U- U.K. was operating almost like an emerging market currency in some regards. So I'm just yeah. thinking about how we think about the sort of macro environment from a emerging versus established markets or, or should I say developed market perspective and how we can navigate that as investors to ensure that we are picking growth markets with currencies that will help us report back in U.S. dollars um, ultimately to our investors or our LPs in a sort of positive way. Uh, and we're not looking at today. We're looking at exits in five to seven years time in the VC landscape, at least. So do you have any view on five to seven years time, you know, what currencies will be devalued, which ones will hold their value, how we should even think about that perspective of, of investing? Yeah, great question. So uh, that's, uh, I love currencies because currencies are so, that's macro, right? One-on-one, right? Like, you know, we, uh, most of our, you know, just as an aside, like most of our uh, audience, at least on the institutional investment side are you know, equity and credit fund investors, or they invest in global fixed income. But, you know, very rarely do you get a chance to really just talk currencies, right? That's the old school, like global macro focus. And so this is a topic that's been a long passion of mine. I will say this just before we even unpack this discussion. I think as an venture capital investor or someone who's investing in private markets, if a currency is a material component in that in that decision tree, it's probably because you're looking at the wrong countries and the wrong businesses, right? If you're trying to exit three or five years from now, uh, 10 to 15% move into currency should not have much of an impact on your IRRs. In my opinion, I think if you're picking the right businesses, obviously, if you're picking the wrong businesses, then that would be a material um, function. But but generally speaking, like in, in my opinion, I think you can generally write off currency movements over a long period of time because, again, the means are going to be you know fairly stationary. Uh, you know, you now you're going to have currency cycles. Right now, we're in a very strong dollar bull cycle. And dollars, you know, historically strong versus the euro, historically strong versus the British pound, historically strong versus the Japanese yen, and it's getting to a point where it's starting to become historically strong versus the Chinese won. You know, the things that tend to drive these cycles longer term, and we've seen, I've seen dozens of different models that uh, try to sort of um, project exchange rates, and they some work sometimes, and some others work other times. And the reality is, there's not one particular model that you can use to say, hey, okay, I expect. XYZ inputs to accumulate uh, to generate XYZ outputs, you know, some, you know, three or five years later. The reality is, I think the most models, the models that have been the most consistent are sort of the dollar smile theory, which is, you know, when the world is because the world is on the global dollar uh, reserve system, most of the world, the credit that's created in the world is is, is, is in dollars. Most uh, transactions, cross-border transactions tend to be in dollars. And so as a function of the world getting better on the, on the right tail of things, 
the dollar tends to do really strong because again, the US is tends to be a great beneficiary of all that. And on the function of the left tail of things, the dollar tends to be really strong because you tend to have a sort of, let's call it a, a significant reduction in the supply of dollars available for consumers and businesses and investors to actually access. And that's sort of what, that's that's the scenario we currently find ourselves in today. Um, that scenario is also being exacerbated by what I think is a kind of the, one of the other more consistent models um, is in terms of like the, 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 the spread between different countries' policy rate expectations and short-term uh, interest rate securities. Um, the Fed continues to be the leader as it relates to not only terminal rates, but also the speed with which those rates are changing. And so right now, the dollar is benefiting from both higher expected uh, terminal rates in terms of premiums, but uh, also the, 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 the change is actually faster than what we're observing in uh, peer central banks. That change is going to slow. Sorry, real, yeah. some of our audience might not know what terminal rates means. Do you mind? Oh, sorry. Yeah, let me take it back. Yeah, please. My apologies. Cut me off anytime. My apologies. <laughs> so what I mean by terminal rate is the federal fund, let's say the Fed is hiking the Fed funds rate. Right now, it's currently at, you know, three spot, uh, two, five percent. They want it. Uh, the market is currently pricing in. If you look at six month forward uh, futures for different things like Fed fund futures or euro dollar futures, et cetera, their market is currently saying, we think the Fed's going to get this rate to around 4.5 percent. So another 125 basis points. So that 4.5% is the expected terminal rate where the Fed will end this particular tightening cycle. Mm. And so our expected terminal rates are higher than the expected terminal rates of countries like the Bank of England, the European Central Bank, uh, obviously Bank of Japan is not even tightening. So uh, the dollars will be benefiting from that. But it's also benefiting from the change in the speed of the change in the terminal rate expectations, i.e. we've gone from 2.5% to 4.5% in like six months, mm. whereas it's taken six months to get the euros terminal Fed funds rate to, you know, 2%. You know, so we're, we're also benefiting from the speed of that change too, but the speed of the change is going to slow down. And so that you're going to remove one of the, the, the positive sort of things that's been very strong and supportive for the dollar um, over the near term. And that's going to start to cause, you know, dollar weakness or not necessarily dollar weakness, but you're going to remove a significant reason for a lot of the current people who are along the dollar in the, in the forex market to start to, to 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 start to close out some of their positions. So um, you roll this forward, let's call it three to five years from now. The only things that really matter three to five years from now are the economies, the the shape and nature of the recoveries that these economies are going to experience on the other side of what is going to be likely be a downturn. You know, in, in places like the U.S. and Europe and Europe, you know, these 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 economies have proven that they have not been able to stomach uh, tightening. And more importantly, history shows. You tend not to get, you know, significant drawdowns in inflation, particularly core inflation, unless you go into recession. So we can assume that at some point in the next three to five year investment horizon, there's probably going to be a recession across most of these economies to have to price in. And so it's the kinds of sort of dynamics like uh, demographics, uh, the capital cycle. You know, did, did we overinvest capital in a particular country or particular A? Uh, did we underinvest in particular country or particular A? I think the best combination from a currency market perspective our demographics and places where we have not seen a lot of investment. Right now, the U.S. has seen too much investment. If you look at the last four years in particular, through the lens of the change in our net international investment position, which is the amount of stuff that people own, the amount of stuff that foreigners own that 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 is U.S. capital. You know, we've actually sucked in about ten trillion dollars over the last four years, which is like as much as the last twenty years combined. And so that's a lot of money that could go in the other direction in a in a recovery cycle. So you look for countries that have hot, good demographics that have had starve, starvation of capital. Those currencies are likely to do really well. So I can't name them off the top of my head on the on the capital side, but certainly on the demographic side, 
you know, it's all your who's who of emerging markets. Absolutely. It's so interesting when you mentioned it's the rate of change that's really important. You know, that's something that people don't think about. It's, they think of the absolute, you know, change that happens, but it's about how fast things are changing. And, you know, you look at things like the ISM index and things of that nature, you start to understand uh, the way the world works and, and, and really those nuances that matter more than other things. But there's something you mentioned as well and that I've been thinking of, which is around the fact that the US dollar is what's used in like 88% of world trade and the US benefits from that, right? Because everyone needs to convert their local currency to dollars to buy certain goods and services. Um, but we've seen currencies like the Russian ruble gain um, because they are sort of a commodity backed quote unquote currency, right? Because of their oil and things of that nature. Do, do you forecast or see a world in which US dollar, the US dollar becomes a smaller percentage of the global sort of reserve currency and is that necessarily a bad thing? Because if other current countries can trade directly with each other or use another medium, what does that mean for the U.S. and what does that mean for the world at large? Oh, great question, man. So, yes, uh, to answer your question, the, the short answer is yes. The world is already moving towards a multipolar state. Um, if you look at the alliance between China and Russia, that's about as clear an indication that that particular side of the world, that axis of the world really does not believe in the sort of uh, the proliferation of the U.S. dollar as the as the as the, the sort of primary medium of exchange, and more importantly, as the as the unit, the base unit for reserve, you know, status. Um, so China's done a significant. They've they really since over the last kind of six or seven years, really since 2015, they've been embarking on a series of measures in terms of you know issuing international swap lines to peer economies, et cetera, that sort of suggest that they're setting themselves up to the bare minimum be the sort of reserve currency of Asia. Now this will take. If, if not 10 years, if not 20 or 30 years in terms of actually getting this, this done. But the reality is, is, you know, he he or she who controls the price of the barrel of oil has, is, is in control of the game. I mean, that we've learned this, you know, really studying the petrodollar system since going back to the 1970s. And it's very clear that if Russia decides to become a rogue actor with respect to its energy products, i.e. really only selling to places like China or, you know, friendly countries like India, Pakistan, et cetera, Turkey, you know, those are the, you know, that could really have a real material shift in terms of the, you know, the, the how much the world needs dollars, right? The, you know, the, that that's a lot of demand for barrels of crude oil and energy products. That if they don't need to be priced in dollars, the dollar, you know, China doesn't need to sit on three point something trillion dollars of U.S. dollars denominated foreign exchange reserves. You know, so that, you know, so the key takeaway is what are the implications of all this? And again, this stuff is structural. I mean, you're, you're asking my questions as a venture capital investor, because again, you guys have much longer term time horizons than, than I guess us macro guys and us regular equity and credit guys. But the reality is the, the obvious implications is weak dollar cost capital in the U.S. higher. I mean, I don't know what the math is on this, and I'm not sure we can know because it, there's been no kind of factual to observe. But the reality is we know that the U.S., which has had a persistent current account deficit, you know, we, we've not had to have the kinds of levels of interest rates that would allow us to sort of, you know, capitalize those deficits. You know, that's that's, you know, I think we're observing this in real time of what it would might look like, you know, with the Bank of England, with the with the, uh, with, the, with, the with London um, in terms of list trusts and, uh, and, our, and our economic policies being repudiated by the market. That's the kind of stuff you would expect to see when the U.S. decides to do fiscal stimulus in a world where the U.S. is not on um, the reserve currency. So. You know, it's it's called exorbitant privilege for a reason. You know, it's kept our inflation down. Um, it's allowed us to access international capital uh, at rates that would otherwise be untenable uh, if we weren't the reserve currency. So, 
uh, for other investors. So I, I got to believe that as we progress forward in time, you know, the the underlying the the spread between U.S. interest rates and global interest rates that current spread as wide as it is now because we're you know we're at the bottom of the cap we're at the top of the capital structure at the bottom of the interest rate structure that spread's going to narrow. IR rates are going to catch up to the rest of the world. But again, this is multi-decade stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have to think in long-term horizons because the actual average time for a company to exit back in the early 90s, it was three or four years you could get an IPO. Now, private companies are staying private for longer, 10, 12, even 15 years, they're companies that don't exit. So we kind of have to start thinking about macro and forecasting what the world will look like when that exit or liquidity event happens for some of these investments we're making today. Um, are they, yeah. is those average statistics or you say you're just highlighting? What, what's the average now? No, the average now is about 10, between 10 and 12 years, depending are on what- Are you kidding me? Yeah, wow. yeah. It's a long time. Yeah. Because companies are just kind of taking in the money right now, making hay while the sun shines, private market valuations, or some would say distorted versus the public, right? So they want to keep those valuations high and then hopefully grow into those valuations. So when they IPO, the market agrees with the latest valuation. Because what you're seeing now is that the, the public markets are you know depressed and that's- cascading into the late stage private investments and it's cascading all the way back. So companies want to stay private for longer so they can grow into these, some would say overhyped valuations rather than IPO and then see your, your stock just crumble and your late stage investors just get absolutely obliterated. I, yeah. I can think of so many examples there. Um, but I, I don't want this to just be a one-way street. I know you had a few questions about sort of VC and startup investing and things of that nature. So feel free to shoot if anything has come to mind. Well, yeah, it was actually specifically on that process. So, so it's what I don't understand is, um, and, and please educate me on this is, is what's the typical time lag between observing something like a twenty percent decline in the public equity market and actually seeing those haircuts in the in the private markets? We know that if the private the public equity market is down, we're going to see a, a cessation, like a real cutoff of, of deal flow and, deal, and, and capital markets activity. But we might not actually. So, when do you actually start to see the marks? Is it, I mean, again, I have no idea. Please, please educate me. Yeah, no, I mean, so late stage, you've already started to see those effects. In fact, according to the CB Insights Q2 report of this year, late stage uh, valuations, late stage meaning sort of series E and D and things of that nature, uh, valuations have gone from about $1.1 billion to about $1 billion. So 10% reduction, but it depends on the company you're talking about. I mean, Klarna, which is a huge fintech, went from $75 billion in valuation to like five, which is not, you know, it's huge. It's, it's a catastrophic fall. But that's a very unique uh, circumstance. We're looking at the median, not the one-offs. So late stage, you start to see the, the valuations go down. But interestingly enough, the cascade hasn't filtered right the way through to sort of angel and pre-seed, which is the very early stages of investing. Those valuations are actually going up, believe it or not, by 10 to 15%. And I have a few theories why. Uh, my hypothesis right now, my working hypothesis is that after the pandemic, uh, there's been this proliferation of new startups because the world has fundamentally changed in ways of working and things of that nature. And so a lot of VCs are now competing heavily to go into that space because there's so many new ideas. You see Andreessen Horowitz and Sequoias, who were typically late stage investors, are now coming in earlier on. Um, so they've created multi-billion dollar funds, which means there's more competition for these deals um, that are happening at the early stages. So that's one of the reasons that I see that, that that happening earlier on. But I do believe it will cascade right the way through. I'd give it another 12 to 24 months to work its way right the way through. But it's a great question to be asking. It's I didn't realize the, the, the lag was that long. 
Oh yeah. Because I mean, you you see the I mean, you could see it. You pull up with like uh, for instance, you look at Bloomberg and you could see League and shows you like um, capital markets activity, IPOs, uh, debt issuances, etc. That stuff is it's it's, it's bone dry. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For lack of a better phrase, but but it's it's so interesting to me that I, I guess it it does kind of make sense though. Unless companies need money, I mean, they will eventually all need money at some point. But until they say we need money, there's no reason for the valuation to change, right? Exactly. Exactly. So a lot of these companies will have 12, 18, 24 months of runway. So until they're pressed to raise, and I'll be honest with you, some VCs don't want to see valuations go down for obvious reasons, right? So what they'll do is maybe a bridge round just to keep the valuation where it is and things of that nature. Um, Yeah, so it's a very interesting game. And also don't forget, we're expecting at the early stages, a lot of companies to fail because by nature of early stage investing. So it's kind of like the more bets you put into into the race, the more chances you have of hitting that one or two uh, or those one or two unicorns that'll pay for your overall fund. So it's kind of like, yeah, I don't mind throwing a few extra $100,000 checks here and there because I need one that's going to pay for the entire fund. So the more bets I place, the better my chances are. So that's also why it's a bit different at the early stage compared to the late stage. Late stage, it's like all your chips are in one or two baskets of, of you know big companies that you're hoping to do really well. Um, so it's a bit of a different dynamic. No, this is it's fascinating stuff, man, because it's it's you know we have a negative view on the growth cycle. Like we, if right now, I would argue based on our analysis, a recession is not necessarily the modal outcome, um, either in terms of with markets and pricing in, but also in terms of with the, the dynamics in the economy. We, we simply have not seen the kind of build. There's two things that tend to cause a recession. Um, one is an aggressive buildup in terms of uh, leverage, debt to income, debt to GDP. If that's if that buildup is over a short period of time, like a, if a two sigma, you know, kind of a move over three to five years or something like that, for instance, that tends to be a warning, like a red flag warning signal for a recession. You know, we don't have that in the private sector in the United States. Um, you know, we're basically at like a zero sigma in terms of the speed of the the, the, the leveraging that we've done in the last three to five years. So that's not really a big issue. Um, we have seen a pretty substantial size in terms of the shock. Uh, so one thing we also look at in terms of, you know, uh, identifying, you know, kind of short term debt cycle risk um, is just looking at, you know, sort of the cost of amortizing debt, you know, our debt service ratios rising really uh, quickly. Um, we've seen obviously policy rates and interest rates across the curve and credit spreads widen. And, and so we've seen that that buildup. We've had a pretty significant shock. In fact, if you look at it on a real interest rate basis, or if you look at it in terms of um, mortgage rates, either real interest rates or mortgage rates, the biggest shocks we've seen on a rolling three-year basis ever in terms of the statistics. We have the data going back to the you know 70s and 80s for these, these statistics. So wow. it's a big deal. It's just not as big as a deal as it would be if we also grew a bunch of credit into that, right? Because what you're really saying is we're resetting all all the credit to a higher level. All the refinancing has to happen at a higher level, and we're probably not going to have the cash flows to support it. So that process is not necessarily as onerous as it was, let's say, in 2000 or 2007. But it's still it's still not good, right? You know, you have a pretty substantial shock, so it's probably telling you that growth's likely to continue to slow. You're probably likely to have some industries in recession, maybe not necessarily all industries, because again, there's a tremendous amount of cash on consumer and corporate balance sheets. And I'd actually have posed this question to you. You know, right now, if you look at uh, the aggregated full fund statistics uh, in the U.S., I'm young, nicely in the U.S. in particular, there's about $4.9 trillion of cash uh, on consumer balance sheets, there's a bit that, which compares to around $1.2 trillion pre, pre-COVID. So a lot of the excess stimulus that the government spent has found its way onto consumer balance sheets, either through direct you know, government transfers 
or through me spending money at your business and you know you small business owner now have my money um that's 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 a really high number relative to history we also have around 2.2 trillion dollars of cash on corporate balance sheets so to me i have to add you know when i think about like the the outlook for the economy it has to be sort of it can't just be all negative right we have this massive interest rate shock but we also have a crap ton of cash on corporate balance sheets and there's a lot of cash waiting to collect interest as well and so i and i think about it from the perspective of your industry which is are companies as flush as they seem based on those statistics? Yeah. And is this, is this, do you expect what we're seeing from a policy tightening perspective, from an interest rate shock perspective, to really hit the kind of companies that you guys are following and tracking? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, there's almost $290 billion of dry powder in the VC space. This is record Ooh. level. There's never been wow. this much capital available uh, in the VC space ever. The last time I heard that statistic, it was, in the, it was like 110. Yeah. So that's a lot. Yeah, there's a lot of money available. Um, so that's not the problem. So VCs will be able to fund companies and give them extended runways. But you have to understand that VCs are funding scalable, usually tech-enabled businesses. So the mom and pop stores that are out there, they, theirs might be very different from sort of tech and scalable businesses, right? So I would really make sure that we dissect and look at within the landscape of consumers or businesses, who amongst them has the dry powder? Um, because even amongst consumers, I would hypothesize, and I don't know the data on this, but it's like within a certain enclave, maybe it's upper middle class or whatever it is, people that have been able to save that don't have those daily expenses. Those are the people that have the dry powder that were able to buy second homes and things of that nature. But a, a vast majority of people, I mean, Americans, almost 50% can't afford a thousand dollar, you know, unexpected fee that comes up, those people are really hurting even more. So what I, I hypothesize and what I see right now is, yes, there's a lot of money, but it'll go towards companies that are A, um, sort of best poised to win in the long run. And win here means capture so much market share that the competitors just fall off or raise enough money from, from VCs in the meantime. Or B, those that are actually able to show a long-term trajectory in terms of getting to profitability. In the VC space now, we were usually uh, tasked with looking at user growth, right? It was all about how many users can you acquire, and then eventually we'll monetize them at some point. But now the conversation is very different. I want to know how you're going to get to profitability within the next two to three years, because while I have the dry powder now to invest in you, at some point, the taps are going to, you know, shut off. We are going to see that decline. And I want to know that you're able to sustain yourself at least, you know, during that time period where things are tough um, because we just don't know what it's going to look like. So long story short, I just say, yes, there is a lot of dry powder out there and there is, you know, consumers or there are consumers and businesses flush with cash, but it depends on what part of that spectrum you fall on um, uh, to a significant degree, to be honest. Yeah, great, great, great question or great uh, response, man, because you you bring up something I think is uh, very important to highlight, especially now in, in this American economy, which is the distributional aspects of this this entire experiment, if you will, <laughs> monetary policy is, is going to be, I would argue fiscal policy is even more of an experiment at this point. The distributional aspects are huge now because you know, we, we, we've exited an era and, you know, I, I happen to believe that QE was a big contributor to a lot of the wealth and income inequality. Uh, that we see in the country, but maybe you agree or disagree. It's, it's either here or there. We know it exists. We can observe it. You know, we can look at our Gini coefficient. You know, we can look at you know different distribution uh, changes in the distribution of share of income, share of wealth, et cetera. And if we were about as unequal as we were prior to the Great uh, Depression. Yeah. Um, so you know, go pick your metric. And so I, I happen to believe that part of the response that we're having from a fiscal uh, situation perspective, whether it be you know the populism we've seen on the right. 
we obviously have populism on the left, you know, in terms of both the Trump and Biden administrations, you know, uh, the, all roads basically lead to like trillion, trillion five dollar budget deficits, you know, for the foreseeable future. Uh, whether it would be blowing a hole in the tax uh, collection or blowing a, uh, you know, taking spending up uh, too high, but it's all going to more fiscal, more fiscal, more fiscal. And as a function of more fiscal, more fiscal, more fiscal, we're probably going to have less monetary, less monetary, less monetary, right? And so you think about the kinds of companies that have historically really worked for VC investors or have been the kinds of companies that user growth is really the only thing that matters, you know, get to scale, get to marketability, burning cash, cash flow is not really that big of an issue. And to your point, you're saying, hey, look, we're actually having this discussion already in the industry, which is, is actually, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's ref one, it's refreshing to hear because it sort of aligns with my worldview, which is we're going to be in a world where fiscal authorities are in control, control and in charge of the ship, which means monetary authorities are going to have to clean up the mess. And they're cleaning up the mess, which is what we're observing in 2022, which is higher interest rates. Higher balance sheet policies. And so I go back and I think like, is the opportunity set going to change for you guys? Right. Like that to me is different. Like, like, like five years from now, let's say we're in a world that's higher, like everything we think about in the world, at least 42 macro, which is higher inflation, more fiscal, less monetary. If we're in that world for the next three to five years, does the opportunity set for that $290 billion of dry powder change? Like how how do you think that might evolve? Like what what was VC like in the seventies? Basically, is what I'm really trying to ask. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to change significantly, um, depending on who the target audience is for a lot of the VC backed companies are. So to make that more concrete, um, if a, a, a company is going after consumers, so B two C, right? We know that consumers are going to become much more cautious in light of a recession, in terms of like higher interest rates, their mortgage is going up, and all those kinds of things. So it's going to be a lot harder to extract that marginal dollar um, from that consumer um, who is really under really you know tight pressure. And so the kinds of companies we're going to that will be successful are those that consumers see tremendous value from such that they, they can't they have to purchase this product or something that saves them a lot of money and helps them be nimble with their finances or their ways of working so in other words it's going to be really hard to extract that extra dollar from that business when it comes to the b2b side um businesses i don't think are going to be are going to struggle as much as especially in the middle sort of bracket of things um but businesses are also going to be cautious of this because at the end of the day the ultimate customer of those businesses is a regular consumer in many cases. Um, but I think from a B2B perspective, it's going to change. Um, companies are looking for cost-cutting reduction measures or things that can improve their top line or growth, much like you know consumers are. But I think um, you're going to have to justify investments um, with much more tangible sort of calculations, trade-offs, and things of that nature over the next couple of years if you're in the B2B space. Um, and I think it's going to end up being where companies are going to go all in on a few sure bet winners um, as opposed to kind of using a hodgepodge of different kind of startups or different kind of investments as opposed to them uh, using sort of one uh, core company or one core value proposition from a particular user. So I, in, anyway, I think it's going to be pretty interesting and pretty different over the next couple of years. Uh, but I, it, it bifurcates when you look at B2B versus B2C significantly. Um, and then as I mentioned before, profitability. At this point in time, 
if you're profitable and you can show sustainability, you're going to get so much money thrown at you. It's incredible. If you can't show that right now, then I think there's a different discussion that's going to be had. Um, but yeah, in the, I mean, in the 70s, back in the day, there was much less competition. People didn't even know about VC. There was like a handful of them. There were a bunch of guys in Silicon Valley that pooled money together and invested in some companies. But now everyone wants to be a VC. You see all these platforms where, you know, you can put a thousand dollar check into a startup. So people are realizing that they have to create passive income streams for themselves. And they're thinking, if I can invest in the next Google or the next Uber, whatever it is, I can either start to see my $1,000 check 10X or 100X in five or 10 years time, which helps me keep up with my spending patterns. I know, I'm pretty sure you know about the wealth effect, but it's like, my house has gone down, everything else has gone down. I need to invest in an asset that helps me escape this inflation nightmare I'm in. VC is one of those avenues because historically we outperform S&P 500, all these types of things. So you're going to see a lot of average consumers investing in startups that they think are going to be the next Google. And they're happy losing half their investment. All they need is one or two big winners. They can get that 100K, $1 million check. And then they feel like, okay, they can breathe a little bit. Um, so all my friends, everyone is speaking about it in, in conjunction with sort of the meme stock frenzy that you heard about and all that kind of stuff. But I think VC is being democratized to an extent I've never seen before. Everyone wants to be a VC. Everyone wants to invest in startups and they're okay to actually lose because this millennial generation has a very different risk tolerance uh, compared to boomers. We're not doing the traditional 60-40, all that's out the window because for the first time in history, I think bonds and equities have both struggled at the same time, which is not really usual. Um, so now it's all about can and we get that one or two, uh, one or two big wins or exits that can help us outpace inflation and do well. So hopefully that kind of answers your question. No, it does, man. Because I, I've seen it. You, you brought up the millennial sort of risk tolerance, and one thing I've seen this sort of YOLO mentality, this YOLO culture. In my opinion, I think it dates back to kind of the origins of this QE era, right? Like most millennials, you know, we're probably not old enough to have a significant, uh, you know, nest egg, you yeah. know, back in two thousand nine or. You know, they, they weren't able to buy S&P 500, you know, 600 something or Bitcoin zero dollars and zero cents. Yeah. And so everyone as a function of watching sort of asset markets, you know, appreciate, appreciate, appreciate and appreciate and really not having a real significant generational buying opportunity like previous generations have had, you know, yeah. like the, the, the Gen Xers. If you had money as a Gen Xer, you could have bought every asset you wanted in 2008. You had every money in the, as a baby boomer, you could have bought every asset you wanted in 2002, right? Like. It was all this, um, all these big opportunities to buy, to buy, but we have not had that. And so I think millennials and, and certainly Gen Zers, I feel like they got to catch up. It's like take as much risk as possible because we don't get these opportunities. We, you know, we had a Fed that was so interventionist. I think that the interventionist Fed is, is probably some, a thing of the past, or at least relative to what we have used to experience. So you might actually start to see more normal, I guess, you know, market conditions that would allow you to have some, some big investments. Uh, I do, I do, uh, uh, just as an aside, I do worry because both, and this is a dirty secret in finance, you know, but I'll tell you, institutional investors are just as, as momentum junkies as, as retail investors. Mm -hmm. You know, they see an asset class that works. They want to flow funds into it. They mm -hmm. see a fund that works. They want to flow funds into it. And every empirical study shows that if you're Fund A, you're in the top quartile or top decile performance. The probability of you being in the top decile performance year one from now, year three from now, year five from now is low. Yeah. You know, same thing with different asset class returns. But anyway, we all we all we're humans. We all we all we, we we like winners and we don't like losers. You know, so it's pretty abnormal. So that behavior you're observing 
um, in terms of everyone wanting VC. It's the same thing we're observing institutionally as well. Everyone wanted private equity, everyone wanted VC. But the reality is I, 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 I wonder, you know, just the natural contrarian to me as an investor says, man, usually when everyone likes something, it usually doesn't work, right? Like the time to want stocks is March of 2009 when everyone thinks the world's going to end, right? Yeah. Or April, April or March of 2020 when everyone thinks the world's going to end. The yeah. time to not want stocks is, is January 2022 when everyone thinks everything was well, not even January 2020. I would say January 21 was even more bullish. Like January 21, it's like, man, everything's fantastic recovery and things are great. And then you look at one by one, small caps peaked in, crypto peaked shortly after, um, Kathy Wood peaked back then, but it didn't feel like it were peaking because everything was fantastic, right? Yeah. And so, you know, to me, it's the natural contrary to me says if everyone wants VC, because VC has done really well in the most recent you know, market cycle, it's probably not going to be the best risk-adjusted return relative to what a lot of people expect. It might still have high returns relative to the broader equities and stuff, but it tell, it, to me, it just says there's a lot of money chasing a lower return profile. When that happens, you get you tend to get negative returns or exactly. bad returns. And speaking of dirty little secrets, that's kind of what's happening in VC as well. So everyone has accumulated money over the past two or three years. And when I say everybody, I mean institutional players in the VC space have accumulated money waiting for the downturn for valuations to drop off a cliff. And then they're all going to pile in. So I'm guessing 2023, 24 will actually be a, a good year in terms of the amount of money that's going in. Um, but the individuals who are maybe not as sophisticated, they don't know how to time it per se. They see a good opportunity. They just put money in. So I'm, I forecast that a lot of people are going to lose money but yeah. it's the same thing with the, you know, the meme, the Robin Hood. People are actually okay with losing money. You know, they're, they're willing to take that risk and say, I lost because I played the game, but I wanted to at least have a chance to escape the rat race um, of this inflation world or this high asset world where I can't even get on the housing ladder and all those things. At least let me have a shot uh, at mm -hmm. success. Um, so, yeah, a lot of people are going to suffer. I hate to say it, um, but that's where institutions are going to sweep in and pick up assets on the low or on the cheap within the next 12 to 18 months. Once people are out of jobs and things of that nature, startups are really starved for cash and things of that nature. Um, so, yeah, it's a very topsy-turvy world we're going into. But, um, you know, that presents opportunities at the same time. If you have a sharp eye and you have a good network and you really know what you're doing, um, I think, you know, some people will do well. A part of me, though, I have to admit, is a bit is a bit concerned that, you know, we might go into, I don't want to say the D word, like a depression, but almost like a monetary reset. And it's because the U.S. economy is mostly consumer spending. Consumers are kind of tapped out right now. The real wages have not gone up in 30 years. I mean, they're down this year, I think, like 2 or 3% compared to, you know, inflation. Yeah. So it's like at some point, the consumer is going to tap out significantly and there has to be a monetary reset. But that just might be the doomsday guy in me. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's it's fashionable to be a doomsday uh, person this this uh, year. Um, you know, I have a little bit more of a sanguine view uh, on the economy. I, I think you know, recession is a very feasible outcome by the end of this process, this tightening process. But I, I, we just don't have the leverage cycle dynamics in the economy that would perpetuate a real deep, nasty recession. Now, if the Fed overdoes it just by a tremendous amount, then obviously all bets are off. But I gotta believe that you know, just based on some of the early signs on 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 you know what they what they're looking for to get out of this regime i think they're going to see what they need to see before they truly in and in, in, you know put us in a depression or or doomsday uh scenario but that doesn't mean a recession is not a recession is a good thing by the way we're a capitalist society yeah. the recessions help us reallocate capital they give people an opportunity to invest you know yeah. would you rather buy a house that's up 
thirty percent year over year, or a house that's down ten percent year over year. Exactly. Right? Like, <laughs> like, you know, like, like, like it's so like you know it's funny like we we, we treat everything in life like uh, very differently than we treat investing. You know, like we go to the grocery store, we want a good deal on everything we buy, but then when it comes to investing, we run for the hills when we see good deals uh, in the markets, and so. I find that to be very fascinating, but we know that's behavioral, that's, that stuff won't change. Um, you know, kind of my, like, I guess my parting thought on all this, it's, it's you, you you mentioned something that I think is very important to sort of end on, which is, this is an era for active management. I think the number one thing that is, is, is very clear from our perspective in terms of the models that we built, in terms of projecting things like the longer run need of inflation, equilibrium interest rate, stuff like that, all this wonky academic stuff that, you know, most people listening to this don't really care about. We're going from a state of a lot of those indicators that was extremely favorable for asset markets, particularly risk asset markets. At the bare minimum, we're going to a state that is probably neutral. And it's my belief that we're going beyond a state that's neutral in terms of like the steady state equilibrium of, of, of monetary policy, fiscal policy, of interest rates. All these things are probably going to be adverse, which means the opportunity set of investors is going to be smaller, which means you're going to need thoughtful, active managers to go actually find those opportunities and take advantage of those opportunities, as opposed to just being long beta. You know, there's a huge ton of opportunities because everyone's got cash and every VC can capitalize every business. You don't need a smart VC manager. You know, you do need a smart VC manager or macro guy. In this or guy or gal in this in this particular world, because again, that opportunity set in terms of the total amount of return we should expect on an ex ante basis from financial markets is going to be lower in this next decade. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. Well, thanks so much for being on the show, Darius. We'll yeah. have you back for another episode. I'm Love sure. To. Thank you so much. Appreciate you, Saka. This is awesome, man. Uh, you're doing great work, man. Keep it up. Sounds good.